This fall at Kenilworth Union, Joe and Katie and I have been looking at many of the good things God has given us that we need to be careful stewardships as God's managers here on this earth while we're here serving God. And today we think about God's gift of community. This passage from the letter to the Ephesians is a frequent text that preachers use on All Saints Sunday, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. For Christ is our peace. In him he has made all of us into one and has broken down the dividing wall of his hostility between us. Christ came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those of you who are near. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built upon the foundation of the prophets and apostles, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple for the Lord, in whom also you are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. This is a prayer of the 20th century American theologian Reinhold Niebuhr. Pray with me. God, you've bound us together in this bundle of life. Give us grace to understand how our lives depend on the courage, industry, honesty, and integrity of our fellow human beings, that we may be mindful of their needs, grateful for their faithfulness, and faithful in turn in our responsibilities to them through Jesus Christ our Lord. So human community is one of the great, good, God-given gifts God has given us to steward while we walk this earth for the 80 or so years we've been given. Because I can't be I without you, and you can't be you without me. In other words, the self is other people. The great German theologian Jürgen Moltmann says, you cannot find yourself in yourself. It's only the person who goes out of himself who comes to himself. It is only in other people that we find our way to ourselves. And so God has placed us in these overlapping, sometimes concentric circles of community. And we need to nurture those circles while we walk this earth and cherish them and be good stewards till the last of all our days. Probably the smallest and most intimate and for many of us the most important of these overlapping concentric circles is our own families, right? Are you a good steward of your own family? Think hard. Are you always in Dubai when your daughter is starring in the school play? All the teenagers were here at the 9 o'clock service and I asked them then if they were good stewards of their families, or their brothers and sisters, their mothers and fathers, because that's a tough time to be a good steward of your family, right? I read this book title a long time ago, Get Out of My Life, But Would You First Drive Cheryl and Me to the Mall? <laughs> sort of captures the tense and fraughtness of relationships to our families during our teen years. We're trying to grow up and be free and get out but we need each other so badly in families. That's what makes it fraught and tense. This happened 24 years ago, and I still remember it. 
My daughter was two years old and my son was six. For all the years of her growing up, my daughter thought her older brother Michael was the coolest thing since peanut butter. He was the only hero in her world. He was six. She was two when this happened. And, you know, he's a great brother to her these days at 31 and 25, 26. But when he was six years old, I often wondered why he didn't work harder at leveraging that adoration. She would have done anything for him, anything. He could have had his own personal valet if he'd wanted one. And so one day my, friend, my, my son has a friend over at the house and they're playing Power Rangers or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or something and they're brandishing their plastic swords defending civilization against the monster hordes that are always threatening justice and innocence. And then these two six-year-old boys decide they need a more private place out of the earshot and sight of this pesky little two-year-old. So they retreat to the basement, go flying down the steps, slam the door behind them, and then I hear this ear-splitting, blood-curdling scream. It was the worst cry of anguish my daughter had ever let loose in all her life. Through all the ups and downs of childhood, the teen years, young adulthood, I thought maybe she got her hand caught in the door, but no, it was just this brutal, naked, existential angst that she was being left out of this little group. It was just the fear of being left out of this club. We all need a place to belong. It starts with our families. Because I can't be I without you, and you can't be you without me, even and especially in our families. Our friendships are another of these overlapping concentric circles God has placed us within. Anna Quinlan was a columnist for the New York Times for 20 years. She won a Pulitzer Prize in 1992. She's written nine novels, and yet this is what she says to the class of 2000 in a commencement address at Villanova University. She says, here's my resume. Here's my resume, she says. I'm a good mother to my children. I'm a good friend to my husband. I no longer think that I'm the center of the universe. I show up, I listen, I try to laugh. I'm a good friend to my friends and they to me. Without them, there would be nothing for me to tell you today because I would be nothing more than a cardboard cutout. I call them on the phone. I go to lunch. I show up. I listen. I try to laugh. I would be terrible or at best mediocre at my job if those other things were not true. You cannot be really first rate at your work if your work is all you are. So this is my advice to you, students, class of 2000. Get a life. Here's my resume, she said. Not a Pulitzer Prize, not nine novels. I show up, I listen, I try to laugh. I'm a good friend. What's on your resume? So I hope your church is one of these overlapping concentric circles that God has placed you in. Tom Long taught me preaching at Princeton Seminary before he went off to Emory University where Joe learned, got her doctorate degree. Tom was part of a church group one time where the moderator of the group asked the group members to share 
a time in their lives when God was especially real to them. And this one young woman stood up and she started speaking. She was a professional dancer, part of a ballet company. And it was clear as soon as she started speaking that she'd rather be dancing than speaking. She spoke haltingly, hesitantly. And she started reminding them that this was her home church. She'd been here all her life. In fact, she'd been baptized in this particular church as an infant. And as she was growing up and getting older and older as a child, her father would tell her about the day she was baptized as a baby. And he was so proud of his daughter, and he was so fond of that memory, he said to her over and over again, Oh, sweetheart, the Holy Spirit was in the church that day. And so every Sunday when she sat in a room like this and looked around the church, she would wonder to herself every Sunday, where's the Holy Spirit in this church? So she'd look at the brass organ pipes. She'd look at the stained glass windows. She'd look at the impressive rafters in a room like this. And she'd say, where's the Holy Spirit in this room? And then she went on. She said, last winter, I lost both of my parents to cancer in one week. It was the worst possible time in my life. And one Wednesday afternoon, I was coming home after visiting my parents in the hospital, and I drove past my church, and I decided to go in and pray. No one else was there. Room was dark. The whole sanctuary was in shadows. Sat in the back pew and just unburdened myself to God. My broken heart, my copious tears, just God in me. Ruth was in the kitchen, and she heard me come in. She knew what was going on in my life. She took off her apron. She sat down beside me in the pew. She held my hand and prayed with me. And that was the day I discovered where the Holy Spirit was in that church. Yes? Our towns, our state, our nation... These are some of the overlapping concentric circles God has placed us in. And so today, I think of Scott Myers and King Poor and everything they do for the town of Winnetka. And I think of Bob Dold and Mark Kirk who serve the Congress and the Senate so faithfully for many years. In my last church at the First Presbyterian Church of Greenwich, somehow my congregation got a lock on the Greenwich Board of Education. Four straight presidents of the Board of Ed in Greenwich were members of my congregation. I don't know how this happened. There were only 850 of us, but somehow we established this hegemony over the Board of Ed in Greenwich. And I was always so proud of my parishioners who were stewarding their town and its children and its teachers. And I always like to think to myself that they learned to be good stewards of their town by sitting in pews like these and listening to me every Sunday. Who knows if that was true or not? But I was so proud of them for taking care of the place God had put them. One last overlapping and concentric circle of community that God has placed us in. It's All Saints Sunday, right? And so one of the things we need to steward is the communion of the saints. On this day, we lift to higher profile something we do quietly and privately every other day of the year. We pay tribute to our dearly departed. In undying memory and everlasting gratitude, we continue to honor them because that third grade Sunday school teacher who taught you the 23rd Psalm 40 years ago, 
that board president you learned so much from, that Stephen minister who walked the Via Dolorosa with you so long ago, that confirmation mentor who nurtured your 14-year-old dreams, they're not gone. They're still part of this family. They continue to shape our character, to sharpen our virtue, to inspire our sacred imagination, and to guide our feet into the way of life. The English raconteur Gilbert Keith Chesterton says that a faithful community will honor the democracy of the dead. Do you love the way he puts that? The democracy of the dead. They get a vote in communities like ours. A faithful community refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. We will have the dead at our council. And so we give a seat at the table where the decisions are made to those who have left us and gone to be part of the church triumphant. They're not only sitting at the table where the decisions are made, we're standing on their shoulders. And the New Testament exhausts its imagination, piling up the metaphors to tell us what they mean to us, our dead. And so the letter to the Hebrews says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. What an apt metaphor, yes? When you fly to Boston, the clouds envelop you. They enfold you. They embrace you. They surround you. When you're flying to Boston, sometimes the clouds is all you can see. Sometimes the cloud of witnesses is all you can see. And this letter to the Ephesians says that we, this small oligarchy of those who simply happen to be walking about, are no longer strangers and aliens, but citizens with the saints in the commonwealth of God. Citizens of a commonwealth with the saints. But that's not enough. The author goes on. He needs another image. He tries again. He says the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. And Jesus himself is the cornerstone. In Jesus, the whole structure is jointed together as the household of God. With them, we build this house. They're the joints and the pegs and the nuts and the bolts that hold the whole thing together. The house of God. Cloud of witnesses. Citizens of a commonwealth. Foundation of God's house. These are what we are. No longer strangers and aliens, but citizens with the prophets and the apostles. And so, oh, Christy, oh, Christopher, oh, Timothy, oh, Mary, oh, Tom, oh, Carl, oh, Allison, oh, Charlie, if I forget thee, may my right hand wither and my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. 